I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Joel M. Gelfand. Dr. Gelfand is Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology, Senior Scholar, Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and Medical Director of the Clinical Studies Unit in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania. Additionally, he is Principal Investigator for the Dermatology Clinical Effectiveness Research Network, a multi-center study evaluating the effectiveness of treatments for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, funded by the RC1 grant from the NIAMS. He is a board-certified dermatologist whose clinical work focuses on general dermatology and psoriasis. Dr. Gelfand is the author of over 100 research articles, reviews, and textbook chapters. He is the recipient of the 2001 American Sin Association Achievement Award for Psoriasis Research. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gelfand. Thank you for that nice uh, introduction. It's really a pleasure for me to be down here speaking to this audience. Uh, plenty of room up front. Anyone wants to come up close? The talk is not contagious, I promise. Let's see if I can orient myself. I guess we have a pointer. All right, so I'm going to speak to you about current concepts and controversies in the safety of dermatologic therapeutics. Uh, I want to go over a disclosure statement. I've been an investigator and consultant for a variety of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, none of these are defined as significant COIs based on the AAMC's policies. And this presentation is uh, my sole work. There are no industry slides in this talk. So I have basically two basic goals for you. One is to recognize the strengths and limitations of the drug approval process for assessing drug safety. So whenever you read the journals, you see you know, safety and efficacy of drug X for condition Y. And I want you to sort of understand where does that information come from and what do we really know about a drug when it gets approved um, by the FDA. And then two is we'll develop an advanced understanding of current safety issues affecting some of our major therapeutics. So drug safety is an increasing uh, concern uh, in our society. Uh, this is for several reasons. One is we use a lot of prescriptions uh, in the United States, over 3.1 billion prescriptions in 2004 alone. Uh, that's over a 60% increase over a previous decade. That trend is not reversing. It's continuing to accelerate. Now, drugs uh, do a lot for our patients, do a lot of benefit for our patients, but they also do some harm, even when they have uncommon side effects or rarer side effects, when so many people are on these medications. So each year, it's estimated about one and a half million patients are hospitalized related to drug-related adverse effects, and about 100,000 Americans die every year from drug reactions. So uh, there's clearly a public health burden to some of the safety issues our medications have. Now, another thing to understand in terms of the secular trend here is that it used to be that most drugs were approved somewhere else. So, you know, in 1980, less than 5% of drugs that were approved uh, in the United States were approved in the United States first. They usually were approved in Europe and were in those markets for many years, uh, accumulating safety data before they came to our market. That trend changed in the 80s. Uh, in 1996, for example, the majority of drugs uh, that were approved in the world came to market first in the United States. So we no longer have that sort of run-in period where we get to learn about early signals and safety issues in other countries. Can anyone tell me what happened between 1980 and 1996 to change this trend, trend so much? Anyone think about what, what the major public health issue was in the country that changed this? I, hear, I think I heard an H somewhere. So HIV. Uh, so in the 1980s, uh, there was a big tension. And one of the big tensions with drug approval is, well, so people need access to drugs that can help. Uh, and it's pretty easy to show that drugs work. It's hard to show that drugs are safe. Uh, and there's a tension society has between bringing drugs to market quickly, but also protecting public health and safety. So when the HIV epidemic came, came out, that tilted the balance in favor of the need for efficacy, less concern about safety. Uh, and now we still have some of these uh, issues uh, today as a result of that changing legislation from that time period. 
Right, so there are critical information, critical aspects of the approval process that you need to know about uh, that are limitations to understanding the safety of a drug. So the first thing is clinical trials generally study people who are, who are healthy. Uh, if you think about the uh, large phase three trials to approve drugs for psoriasis, for example, uh, patients who have you know, bad diabetes or re you know, recent prostate cancer, they're all excluded from these trials. So we don't always know how safe these drugs will be in people who have significant comorbid disease. Second critical issue is that exposure to medications and trials is really only short term, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, maybe three months, maybe a year if you're lucky. Whereas in reality, we plan on putting our patients on these drugs for, for years, for decades. And then third, and perhaps most critically, is that clinical trials really uh, lack statistical power to detect um, adverse events that are uncommon, uh, but of public health concerns. So usually when a drug comes to market, you, it's studied about 3,000 patients. And that means you could just start to detect adverse event rates that occur more commonly than one in 1,000 people. So really what they're, what the, Pro, the program is for, the FDA approval process, is looking at common event rates, things that are around 1% of the population. There we have a good sense of which reactions are drug-related or not, but these less common 1 in 1,000 patient uh, adverse events, um, we're not so certain if we're either going to detect them at all or if they're related to drug or not when the drug is approved. Now, the problem is it turns out that many of the things we worry about occur at or much less frequently than one in 1,000 people per year. So, uh, I mean, to put this in perspective, the risk of melanoma in the general population is one in 5,000 people per year. So you wouldn't have a drug approved that would be able to tell you that it could cause melanoma uh, in a phase three program since there's not enough patients to figure that out. Some of the hot button issues we'll talk about today, things like uh, the risk of lymphoma with biologics occurs at the same rate as melanoma, one in 5,000 people per year. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the recent controversy with isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease? Everyone's hand is up, I hope. So, I mean, that's a very rare outcome. It's, uh, less than uh, one in 10,000 people per year. And then uh, efalizumab and progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. How many people have heard about that association? How many people are on Twitter or Facebook? No? Okay. All right, so I mean, we all should know about PML and, and, and infalizumab. It's a very important find. But that, that's an incredibly rare outcome. That's less than two in uh, a million people. All right, so who cares about this stuff then? If it's so rare that you as an individual doctor are unlikely to see it and your patients are unlikely to succumb to it, why should you worry about it? Well, a lot of people care about this stuff. Certainly lawyers care a lot. Uh, patients care about regulators and the media. There's an article now, an old article from the New York Times, saying a trial lawyers are now taking aim at the drug industry, and this guy's some uh, menacing, looking, menacing looking attorney. Those of you in the back probably can't see, he's got a gladiator helmet on his back over here. So you can't make this up. You know, the guy thinks he's like Caesar or something. Uh, and this is an easy case for tort. So uh, isotretin, no one's been taken by 18 million people, whatever number it is. Uh, this by coincidence, there's gonna be a few, there may be a thousand people who have uh, coexistent inflammatory bowel disease, and boom, you have a, a ready-made tort uh, that you can then take to court. All right, so not surprisingly, based on the limitations that I spoke to you about, uh, safety uh, events are routinely discovered after drugs approved by FDA as being safe and effective. Uh, government accounting agency studies showed about half of approved drugs have serious adverse effects, not detected before approval, but serious we mean uh, potentially life-threatening. Uh, nearly 7.5% have a new black box warning added after approval, and nearly 3% of drugs ultimately get withdrawn from the market due to safety concerns. 
Now, there are sort of classic different types of side effects we think about when we're thinking about drug safety. Uh, one is type A side effects. These are things which are pharmacologic, very familiar to us. Uh, say, isotretinoin-induced chelitis, where it's uh, dose-responsive uh, and uh, common uh, event. So that's very easy to figure out and usually is known about uh, during the developmental process. But then other events, type B and type C, type B is idiosyncratic or allergic. Uh, things like Stevens-Johnson syndrome uh, from a new drug or uh, dapsone-induced agranulocytosis. These are things that are uncommon, rare, but occur in close proximity to the drug. And then type C is even harder to figure out. These are delayed on common reactions. So example, uh, people developing squamous cell carcinoma from uh, uh, and plus UVA therapy. Uh, these are the type of things that uh, tend to occur in a post-approval environment. So to bring another example, type C effects for the cancer. So PUVA is sort of a classic example of this in this area of research. So in 1974, uh, the first articles came out in New England Journal of Medicine showing that PUVA was highly effective for psoriasis. In fact, they, they said that the clearance rate was nearly 100% the patients were clear. Um, that was in 1974, and it took a, a full 10 years before it was definitively shown in large long-term observational studies that, in fact, these drugs uh, were definitively linked to increasing the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. So think about that. Most of our newer drugs for psoriasis, for example, are barely out for 10 years, uh, and oftentimes don't really have this longitudinal data available to look at these questions. Uh, and then, you know, a decade or more later, it was the first paper suggesting that perhaps PUVA could be related to melanoma, a rarer outcome. Uh, so again, that's now about two decades out from when the drug was first starting to be used uh, for patients with psoriasis. And that's something that's controversial to today. Actually, most of the data suggests that PUVA does not cause melanoma. Uh, that study is probably an outlier. So this gives you a sense of the um, natural history of how long it takes to figure out uh, these potential side effects. Now, there's been lots of examples uh, in dermatology about drugs that we've used have been pulled from the market for safety reasons. Uh, some of you who have been practiced for a little bit longer will remember drugs like terfenidine and estimazole. These were uh, antihistamines we often gave for itching. Uh, they can cause fatal arrhythmias, uh, especially when you com combine it with drugs like itraconazole. Uh, isotretinoin has had a variety of controversies over the years. Suicide risk was one of the big ones about five, six, ten years ago. Uh, in this talk, we'll talk about inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, biologics and cancer, you heard a little bit about that earlier. Uh, topical, topical calcineurin inhibitors. I mean, how many of you prescribe topical calcineurin inhibitors, um, FK506 or permicolimus? I mean, how many of you tell the patient about the black box warning? Can't see, yeah. So that, that's, uh, how many of you think that's time well spent with the patient? Uh, probably not a lot of hands. Uh, all right, so, um, and then more, most recently, ifilizumab, one of our drugs withdrawn from the market due to the risk of uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. All right, so then I just want to give you another example of sort of how drug efficacy and safety gets worked out over time. Uh, and in dermatology, we, we really tend to like anecdotal experience with some of our drugs. As dermatologists, seeing is believing. Uh, it's very powerful if a patient come in with a rash or, or something and you give them a drug and it goes away and it's, it's very uh, powerful uh, information for trying to help people. And oftentimes, where you don't have a lot of therapeutic options, we use a lot of anecdotes to practice medicine. But this is an example of how that could lead us astray. So uh, if you think about uh, TZDs, thiazolinidine, uh, drugs are used for diabetes. Uh, they were first approved by the FDA in the late 1990s based on their ability to control glucose. And then in 2000, in, 19, in 2000, there was a first case report of uh, psoriasis responding to troglitazone. 
And shortly after that uh, case report came out, the drug got withdrawn from the market for causing liver toxicity. People who were on it were having much higher rates of requiring uh, liver transplants or, or having fatal liver reactions. Then in 2007, uh, so the story went on, people still thought that uh, TZDs could help with psoriasis. There was a large sort of phase two, phase three program, about, th uh, th about 1,000 patients, showing definitively that rosiglitazone does not help psoriasis. There was no evidence of efficacy in that large trial. Uh, and not too long after that it was published, uh, an article came out basically showing that rosiglitazone uh, has a much higher risk of causing heart attacks compared to other diabetic drugs, and now is a highly restricted drug uh, for use by the FDA. So you can imagine a situation where for all these years people would say, well, let's give a, tr a shot at these TZDs for psoriasis, when the result is actually A, they don't work, and B, they could have some serious safety effects. So no benefit and potential for harm. So something to think about a little bit as you're choosing through your uh, therapeutic pharmacopoeia. Another case study, so how many of you heard of rofecoxib, COX-2 inhibitors? So this is going to be a little bit of an older story now, but this is a classic teaching case uh, of the drug approval process. So rofecoxib uh, is, was a COX-2 inhibitor approved in 1999 by the FDA. It was really approved for people with, uh, with rheumatoid arthritis. We were thinking that maybe it had a favorable uh, GI profile in that patient population. But in those first studies, they already had a hint that MI rates were higher. Uh, in patients getting uh, rofecoxib, but it, the studies weren't large enough uh, to definitively prove that. And no one really knew what the mechanism was, although Garrett Fitzgerald, a, a doc at Penn, first started doing some of the seminal work showing that, in fact, COX-2 inhibition could be prothrombotic. In 2002, the first warnings in the label came out uh, for rofecoxib and other COX-2 inhibitors related to cardiovascular risk. But some of the concerns, this occurred after pooled analysis basically showed that COX-2 inhibitors were increasing MI risk. But it took the FDA 14 months to change the label uh, and, inc and inc include this information for providers when counseling their patients. Uh, and the law has since changed that. At that point in time, the FDA had to negotiate uh, with the pharmaceutical industry on changing the label. So now the FDA can just change the label on their own without any consultation if they wish. And in 2004, rofecoxib was finally voluntarily pulled from the market. This is because large randomized clinical trials looking at these drugs to prevent colon cancer definitively demonstrated they were causing heart attacks. And this is after over 80 million patients across the world had taken rofecoxib as well as other um, uh, COX-2 inhibitors. So the, the natural history and a teaching point is that you tend to have a, drug, a newly approved drug for a narrow indication like rheumatoid arthritis now being used by millions of people in more minor uh, ailments, uh, not having a full safety profile, and then ultimately being shown that it probably has a safety issue that outweighs its benefit for your typical user, someone with an achy knee. Someone who has really bad RA with, with severe joint pain is the only drug to respond to, maybe the risk is worth it. All right, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit now. So how do we look at the safety of drugs in a post-approval market uh, environment? And that's the process called uh, pharmacovigilance, which is defined as uh, the activities involved in the prevention, uh, I'm sorry, the activities involved in the detection, assessment, understanding, and prevention of adverse effects or any other drug-related problems. That's the World Health Organization uh, definition. And it relies primarily on epidemiological studies. So instead of these sort of large randomized controlled trials that are used to uh, prove efficacy, these tend to be observational studies. Uh, there are two forms of observational studies, those which are considered to be descriptive, like case reports and ecological studies, secular trend studies. These are used to generate hypotheses. 
And then there are analytic studies. Uh, they're designed to test hypotheses that, that an association is valid. Things like case control studies and cohort studies and clinical trials. So how do we do this? So most of it is actually done uh, through the FDA-sponsored MedWatch program, which relies on people like you and me who are prescribers to contact the FDA and let them know uh, when we've seen an adverse reaction to a drug. So how many of you here prescribe drugs? Like, I mean, everyone, everyone's hand, I guess, will go up. How many of you here have contacted the FDA about an adverse effect you've seen from a drug? Okay, a few more than we see at the AAD. I mean, so most of us don't really contact the FDA about these things. It's a pretty typical response. But certainly as dermatologists, we see adverse effects from drugs all the time. So underreporting is a major problem with this system. Its advantages is that really it's cheap and it covers the entire population in a way. Uh, and it generates what's meant to be safety signals, you know, ideas, well, maybe something's going on here. The disadvantage is that there's a lot of underreporting that happens. Uh, it could be impossible to attribute causality. And even if you're convinced that the association is real, since there's so much underreporting, you can't tell the risk, or the incidence, or the outcome, and therefore you don't know what the public health burden is. So really what, uh, what the uh, MedWatch program is for is for signal detection, uh, ca generating case reports and case series, which is defined as a set of data constituting a hypothesis that is relevant to the rational and safe use of a drug in humans. Uh, now, despite the fact that they're really supposed to be for hypothesis generation, the majority of the pre prescribing information you get from the FDA after approval is, is from these case reports. Probably about 85% of label changes are just from case report data. Uh, now, unfortunately, very few of these reports are ever followed up with any type of analytical hypothesis testing study to prove that these uh, hypotheses are actually real, or tested. Um, and the other problem is that they're not even uniformly adopted into the prescribing information. So why some things get into the prescribing information from case reports and others don't, no one knows. No one can figure out that, that answer out. Why some drugs have a black box for some things, others, others don't. It's, it's an arbitrary process to some extent. And therefore, uh, it behold, behooves us as physicians to understand, and PAs prescribing drugs, uh, how the information gets there and how we explain it to our patients. So we'll go give some examples now of how this process works. So uh, with efalizumab and aggressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, this is an example of signal detection in action where it's actually useful. It's a very successful uh, example of signal detection, but it's because it's a very defined, specific situation. So in 2003, the FDA approved efalizumab uh, for psoriasis. This is after about, um, three, oh, about 2,700 patients were treated uh, for psoriasis, but only 218 were treated for more than a year. So think about that. So these are drugs that's coming to the market, new molecular entity, never used in humans before, uh, intended to be used for years or decades, and we only have about a year of data on 200 people. That's not a lot of data. Um, all right, and then 2008, uh, by that time, five years later, over 46,000 patients were treated or estimated to be treated. Uh, about 3,000 were estimated to have been treated for more than two years. And there were three confirmed and one suspected case of PML spontaneously reported to the FDA. Now, PML, you know, is an untreatable uh, central nervous system infection that leads to death or serious disability. Uh, and it occurs really only exclusively in a setting of profound immunosuppression. You don't see this in otherwise healthy people. So the estimated risk of PML in ephelizumab-treated patients was about 1 in 15,000 people per year. But again, it's probably an underestimate because we know people don't fully report. Uh, and patients who were treated for more than two years, the estimate was about 1 in 1,000 patients. 
Um, and because PML is so rare and occurs only in the setting of immunosuppression, this is likely a causal association example where spontaneous reports can be very helpful to telling you, yes, this is real and we need to be worried about it. Uh, so, for example, uh, the, the odds that these are coincidental reports is less than one, one in 10,000 because PML has such a rare uh, background rate in the population. And ultimately, the drug was withdrawn in 2009. Now, there are other drugs in the market, one called natalizumab, which have the same risk of PML, possibly higher risk of PML, that are still used for multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. So some of these decisions are related to the uh, benefit versus risk calculation. So some key, some key points uh, from this vignette. One is spontaneous reports can be useful for very rare diseases, such as uh, PML, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Uh, the absolute risk was very likely very low, but not well characterized. So if you've used efilizumab for your patient, odds were that they wouldn't develop PML. Uh, and the risk was judged ultimately unacceptable given the treatment alternatives and the disease indication. And then finally, an important thing to know about is that certain infections may take a long time to figure out. So with PML, the longer you're on the drug, the higher your risk of infection is. All right, so now we're going to do uh, another part of the lecture here where we're going to uh, swear you all in as part of the FDA advisory committee. So you've probably heard of the FDA advisory committees where um, they meet down in a place sort of like this using Bethesda somewhere near the FDA. Uh, and usually some dermatologists and some epidemiologists and statisticians will hear some data and then vote to decide what should happen to the drug. So we're going to try and answer this question, do TNF inhibitors cause lymphoma? And this is from a, um, a patient uh, website uh, blog, if you will. It says, I've been using Embrel for three years and developed aggressive lymphoma. I can't help uh, but suspect the Embrel at least contributed to the disease. It helped my arthritis, but I will never take another wonder drug. It just isn't worth it. So this is sort of, as clinicians, are sort of our nightmare moment. You know, we're trying to treat someone who's otherwise healthy and then develop uh, a bad outcome. So how do we process this for the patient? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead this in a discussion of some of the data, and I'm going to ask you to, to uh, decide whether or not we think we should pull the drug from the market based on the safety data, issue a black box warning, issue a regular warning, or take no action. And this is from the Code of Federal Regulations, so this is your sworn uh, duty to uphold this, uh, this uh, instruction. It says the product insert should include a description of serious adverse reactions and potential safety hazards and limitations of use opposed upon them as these become known through the drug development program. A causal relationship need not be demonstrated. Reasonable evidence should drive the listing. FDA may require a boxed warning if the risk may lead to death or serious injury. This is derived from clinical data usually, but can be from animal toxicology. All right, so everyone know their, their regulatory responsibility now? Any questions about this? Okay, move on. So the first question you say is, well, is this, is this even important to worry about? And you say, well, you know, have you seen a patient with psoriasis and lymphoma? I mean, how many people have ever seen a patient who has both diseases, psoriasis and lymphoma? We got a couple hands up. More hands up than usually. Okay, good. Um, well, so one of the key things that with rare events, individual doctors are unlikely to observe some type of association or adverse reaction. So, you know, if you treated 10 patients with a biologic and haven't had a lymphoma, that shouldn't reassure you. You know, when you've treated uh, 5,000 and haven't seen one, then you can start being reassured. Um, so this is sort of like the line from Duck Soup, uh, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? You know, uh, in dermatology, you like to believe our own eyes and our own experience, especially as physicians, you like to do that. Uh, and, um, but that doesn't really work very well when it comes to understanding rare uh, events and rare associations. Does anyone know which one is Chico here? I think, I think, I think Chico's uh, second from the left, pretty sure. 
Third from the third from the left, I guess. All right. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen a case of psoriasis lymphoma, here's a patient from my practice who has uh, psoriasis on her elbows, and she has both non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we we actually see a lot of these cases at Penn, uh, probably because we're a tertiary care referral center. All right, so again, think about it, is this important? Well, lymphoma is the fifth most common cause of cancer. It's the fifth most common cause of cancer mortality. It actually has the same exact incidence as melanoma, except that it is much more lethal than melanoma is. Uh, and work that we've done looking at the association of psoriasis and lymphoma in the past has suggested that, that there's probably about 2,000 extra cases of lymphoma per year in the United States somehow related to psoriasis, whether it be the disease or the treatments, we don't really know for sure. So from a public health point of view, this is a pretty substantial number of people affected. So some key things we need to answer for ourselves is, well, does psoriasis or the disease that is being treated with these TNF inhibitors, uh, they themselves pose an increased risk of lymphoma? And if so, is the increased risk of lymphoma observed related to the disease or the treatment? These are classic issues in what we call uh, pharmacoepidemiology. So the question of does psoriasis increase the risk of lymphoma, well, actually, the data has been somewhat conflicting in this area. Uh, so it's really unclear the degree to which psoriasis or its treatments influence the risk of lymphoma. When we look at the studies out there, uh, those that look at all lymphomas as a, as a total grouping, uh, six studies have shown an association, two have shown no association. But then when you break it down by subtype, we see that almost all of this is driven by T-cell lymphoma of the skin, where the associations are very, very strong, contains T-cell lymphoma. Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas have much uh, weaker uh, inconsistent results. Let's going to move past this. We'll cover that in another talk. All right, so what about our traditional therapies, safety traditional therapies uh, for psoriasis with respect to lymphoma? Well, as it turns out, methotrexate, which we've used for 60 years, there's no data on the long-term safety of it in psoriasis, the doses we use for causing lymphoma. The largest study is about 200 patients. So we don't have any adequate data to know what the risk of lymphoma are related to methotrexate. Uh, for cyclosporin, there is some data out there, so we'll talk about the cyclosporin data. Uh, and this is a, a, a uh, FDA-required study uh, done by the industry. Uh, they followed about um, they followed about 1,200 patients for on average uh, two to three years, so 4,000 person years. Most patients were only for a year, so a minority were followed for more than two years. And the control population was from the patient's home country, people who didn't have you know, people from the general population. Uh, yielding what's called a standardized incident ratio. And this is done in 11 European countries. You can imagine how hard a study this was to pull off. So I'll just bring it down to the bottom line, the yellow line here. And what they found was that, uh, what the authors concluded is that there's no association of cyclosporin causing lymphoma in people with psoriasis. And so the take-home point I want you to get you, get, uh, that you want you to take from this is that that is an incorrect interpretation of the data. And that's because the study was not powered to detect clinically meaningful associations if they really existed. We know this by the 95% confidence interval. So if we look at a patient who's been on uh, cyclosporin for psoriasis for more than two years, their risk of developing lymphoma was fourfold higher, uh, but not statistically significant because it's a very small study. And they couldn't even rule out that the patient would have a 20-fold higher rate of lymphoma from the mad data that they had. So this is an example of a study that really can't answer the question. It's, the answer is still unknown, uh, but it suggests at least statistically that there may be a lymphoma risk uh, based on these uh, scant data. So we're going to move on to biologics now, and I don't want to get people too worried about these things. I mean, these are very safe and well-tolerated drugs. Uh, the things we're talking about are all in the uncommon uh, arena, things that typically occur at a rate of one in a thousand patients per year. 
So uh, alifacept and probably ifilizumab both have had case reports of lymphomas in the literature. Um, our newest drug, uh, um, Stellara, uh, Eustachinumab, uh, I don't know if they've had case reports of lymphoma yet, not positive. Uh, undoubtedly, they'll be coming. I mean, anecdotal reports come out usually pretty typically after two or three years of drug being on the market. Uh, for TNF inhibitors, most of the data comes from rheumatoid arthritis, where back in 2002, there were over 80 reports to the FDA of lymphomas in patients with uh, either inflammatory bowel disease or, or rheumatoid arthritis getting these drugs. Specifically for psoriasis, there's been at least 12 case reports that have been published in the literature of people developing um, lymphomas. Uh, in some cases, people developing uh, T-cell lymphomas that resulted in deaths or rapid advances in disease related to uh, TNF inhibitors or other T-cell biologics. So these are sort of the signals that we're talking about from earlier. So let's test the signal now. I mean, maybe this is just coincidence, or maybe the person never really had psoriasis, maybe they had lymphoma the whole time. So the best way to do this, of course, would, do, would be a randomized controlled trial, right? That's the gold standard pinnacle of evidence. And the, at the tippy top of the gold standard pinnacle of evidence is the meta-analysis of clinical trials. So these are uh, three meta-analyses that have been published, uh, two in rheumatology and one across all indications. And what you see, basically, uh, is studies that involve uh, anywhere from, you know, about uh, 2,500 patients on drug, to 3,500 patients on drug, to 15,000 patients on drug. You see always an imbalance of the number of cases of lymphoma in the placebo group compared to the treatment group, suggesting that, in fact, that the drugs could be causing lymphomas. But the problem is that these studies are still too small. Even the largest one with the 15,000 patients were too small to find things to be statistically significant. Uh, the last one had a trend towards statistical significance, but it still could be due to chance. So the FDA had another way of looking at this. This is now older data from 2003. And they said, well, let's look at all of our patients' experience in all of our trials with longer-term follow-up and compare it to the general U.S. population. And this is mainly RA data now. So they found that, you know, for a tenor step, they had about a doubling of the risk of lymphoma compared to the U.S. population. Uh, wasn't statistically significant. From infliximab and adalimumab, you had about a seven- to five-fold higher risk of lymphoma, both of which were statistically significant. But then the question becomes, well, are we looking at the risk of lymphoma from the drug or from the disease? Because the people with rheumatoid arthritis probably have a higher risk of lymphoma independent of treatment. That's been pretty well uh, proven by now. So then the best way of doing this is large observational studies that control, use an internal comparison group of people who had a similar degree of disease severity but didn't get the drug. So usually in this case, you're looking at the baseline reference group being people who have RA but got methotrexate. So instead of the TNF inhibitor. So if you look at the SIR, this is comparing the rates of TNF inhibitors uh, being associated with lymphoma in RA patients compared to the general population, these are almost always positive, showing, real asso showing associations. But then when you adjust it for the fact that they have RA, they almost always go away. None of these studies are positive. They're all basically negative and at one, suggesting that, in fact, there may be no risk of lymphoma associated with TNF inhibitors uh, that you could demonstrate, in, at least in studies involving uh, tens of thousands of patients filed for about three years. The largest study just came out of France. This was 19,000 patients. And here, they showed that patients who got adalimumab or infliximab compared to those who got etanercept 
uh, were about four times more likely to develop a lymphoma during the three-year follow-up period. So this is somewhat compelling, but it's the first study to show this and probably needs to be confirmed at this point in time. It's not uh, entirely clear if it's definitely a difference in drug classes or possibly some channeling that goes on. It could be that patients who had the highest risk of lymphoma may be getting the antibody treatments uh, instead of uh, a tanercept. So there's still some controversy there. Not entirely clear if this is a class effect uh, or an individual drug effect. All right, so we talked about the association seen in case reports and in some of the observational studies and meta-analyses. So let's talk about causation. So this is what epidemiologists use to decide uh, about causation. So many, many people left to go uh, argue that uh, tanning beds cause skin cancer, right? How many people think tanning beds cause skin cancer? Okay, so believe it or not, there's actually very, I probably shouldn't say it's too loud, there's not a lot of data to prove that they cause skin cancer. Uh, at least you compare it to, say, um, the data I'm going to show you on psoriasis and cardiovascular disease, or the data we showed you here on, on lymphoma. Uh, it's based on a couple of um, small observational studies uh, looking at um, odds of uh, melanoma down the road in patients who had tanning bed exposure, and then in vitro studies. So this is actually a lot more observational data than, than what we have for tanning beds. But all right. So so uh, these are the criteria we use for so time sequence. Yes, it's a time sequence. They, they have the exposure, then they develop the outcome. Uh, biological credibility, well, uh, it's thought that uh, immunosuppression can make people sensitive to lymphomas. Uh, dose response has not been well established. The strength of the studies are mainly case reports and cohort studies um, that, don't, that have been controlled for confounding by indication. Uh, and then the strength of the association has been modest to strong, but only in studies that didn't really control for the baseline rates of lymphoma. Those are sort of flawed analyses. And consistency of studies, well, those which have uh, control for this issue of channeling bias, uh, control for underlying disease severity, have generally been negative, but may be underpowered as evidenced by the last largest study I presented to you. All right, so now you've heard all the data. It's time to, to take a stand. Uh, so how many here think we should pull uh, TNF inhibitors from the market because they're at risk of causing lymphoma? How many votes for that? Okay. How many people would say we should have a black box warning on the drugs for this? Very few hands, only two. Okay. How many people think we should have a, a regular warning? Most hands. How many, think, how many people think there should be nothing in the package insert about this question? That we shouldn't have to discuss it with patients? No one. Okay, so I think this is a really good exercise. It really shows where people sort of are and how difficult these decisions could be to make. So we know we have black box warnings, for example, that we discuss with our patients uh, related to topical immune modifiers uh, and, uh, and skin cancer and lymphoma, even though there's no plausible data whatsoever to link those two associations. Um, and then we have a, a situation like this where there's lots of data out there, and how do you decide? Is, it, is this a black box? Is it a regular warning? How much information and how much to emphasize this information to patients? Uh, Currently, I think it's mainly a regular warning, although they have added certain black box warnings for different types of cancer. All right, so some conclusions from my perspective on this topic. So uh, the risk is well-defined for lymphoma and TNF inhibitors for people who on for at least three to four years. We have more safety data on these drugs than virtually any drug I can think of. Uh, there's some data suggest a small excess risk of, of um, uh, lymphoma and TNF antibodies compared to a tanercept, but it's not clear if that's uh, due to the drug or due to the underlying indication. The absolute risk is estimated to be very small, so you have to treat about 2,000 patients with a TNF inhibitor per year to get one extra case of lymphoma attributable to these drugs based on the worst case scenarios out there. So that's pretty good odds for your patients. 
All right, so now we're going to move on to uh, isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease. And so here we got to answer the questions is, first, is the association uh, between isotretinoin and IBD due to chance, a statistical error? Uh, second, we have to ask, are there third factors uh, associated with isotretinoin that are independent risk factors for inflammatory bowel disease, what we call confounding? And finally, we got to ask, does the indication of severe acne increase the risk of inflammatory bowel disease, what we call channeling bias? Now, some history here. In 1982, isotretinoin was first approved for nodular cystic acne. Uh, how many patients were in the trials to approve this drug for nodular cystic acne? Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, how many people say 1,000 patients? How many people say 2,000 patients? How many people say more than 3,000? Oh, a couple of hands. How many people were waiting for dessert? No? All right, so it, there was 100 patients in this study. And it wasn't even controlled. It was a crazy 80s. You can get, do anything, get a drug approved. It was amazing. So, so our most powerful, uh, most effective drug uh, approved in only about 80 to 90 patients who were studied for short term, no control group. Uh, and that, so a drug today that came to market, you're looking at at least 3,000 patients. All right, so in 86, there was a first case report of ulcerative colitis occurring in a patient with isotretinoin. In 1998, 12 years later, a warning was added to the package insert. So this information has been around for a long time based on this anecdotal reports. 2003, there was a first lawsuit. So remember my friend with a gladiator helmet on his desk. Okay, now he's, he's involved. Oops. 2008, in New Jersey, one was awarded $11 million for having an inflammatory bowel reaction that was thought to be due to isotretinoin exposure, at least a jury thought so. And that is what the game changer became. Then we start having science come out to look at it. 2009, Roche stopped making isotretinoin and said it wasn't worth their while anymore. So let's look at the science now. So again, the drug was approved in 82. Signal uh, in 86. Package insert change in uh, 90 something, uh, 98 I think it was. It wasn't until uh, 2006 the first uh, paper came out on this topic, scientific at least, where they tried to look at the case reports that came to the FDA and said, well, are these highly probably related, probably related, or possibly related? And they found that you know, a percentage were in each category. And they found that three cases got worse with rechallenge, got better with dechallenge. Take the drug away, symptoms go away, get the drug back, the drug disease, symptoms come back. And some people think that's very compelling. But this is really just anecdotal information. We don't know if there's a chance associations, and we don't really know if these people really had uh, ulcerative colitis or they had just uh, enterocolitis, a drug-related uh, intolerance. Uh, and in fact, this all could be due to chance. So you would expect about 59 cases of uh, inflammatory bowel disease per year uh, amongst people who are treated with isotretinoin. But as it turns out, the age group of people treated with that disease with, for acne uh, is the exact age group that has the highest incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. But they only saw about 14 cases reported per year. So we know the association can be due to chance. Or uh, you could say, well, maybe uh, these drugs protect from inflammatory bowel disease. You only had uh, 59 cases per year. Yeah, but four, you expected 59, but only 14 reports. It must be protective. How many people here would say, uh, well, what would be the reason why that's wrong? Why is that wrong? Yeah, it's underreporting, right? So, but this is important for you to keep, keep an eye on because I've seen in many company, many uh, lectures I've seen during the post-market approval phase of biologics, where where people would show slides showing, look, yeah, the, the, the incidence of cancer is below what we expect to be reported. 
for all the cancers. It's protected for breast cancer. It's below the expect expectation of breast cancer, for colon cancer, uh, lymphoma. That is not reassuring data at all. That's a, that's a misuse of that kind of data and shouldn't sway you in terms of a safety decision. All right, so then now 2009, so we're now almost three decades from drug approval uh, uh, and a good 10 years from the label change and without any scientific data to make a change. So we're having the first scientific paper come out testing this hypothesis. And what they did is they looked at the uh, people in Canada, Manitoba. They had 208 cases of inflammatory bowel disease and almost 20,000 controls. Uh, and they basically looked at people who got isotretinoin either before the inflammatory bowel disease or after the inflammatory bowel disease. Thinking that I saw that was being associated with both directions, that it's probably not a real association. And they really saw no association. The odd ratios were close to one, with fairly narrow 95% confidence intervals. But the biggest issue with this study is that they considered any exposure to isotretinoin ever in the past as being potentially related to the outcome of inflammatory bowel disease, but that's not really the way drug exposure and outcomes usually work. Usually you're looking at exposures within a you know, few months to a year. All those exposures that occurred three years earlier uh, are probably irrelevant and probably causing what we call bias to null findings. So the average time period, for example, from uh, the isotretinoin exposure to IBD in patients who had both was about two and a half years. So there's probably some issues that had to with design to answer this question. So then uh, uh, Sean Crockett then did another analysis, this was published in 2010, uh, using a large medical record system database in the United States, over 55 million patients from over 70 plans. And this has been a system really well tested to study uh, new cases of inflammatory bowel disease. They had uh, over 8,000 new cases of inflammatory bowel disease, over 21,000 controls. And they measured the exposure of being within the 12 months of the onset of the diagnosis of IBD. So if you had isotretinoin exposure three years earlier, it didn't count. If you had it within a year, that counts. And then they controlled for age, sex, and geographic region. What did they find? Well, so they found some interesting things. First, they found that uh, there was no association for inflammatory bowel disease overall, at least statistically speaking. They found absolutely no evidence of an association for uh, Crohn's disease. But they did find a fairly strong association for ulcerative colitis, a fourfold higher rate of ulcerative colitis. They looked for a dose response, and they found that with increasing doses, you had higher rates of ulcerative colitis. And this was not seen for um, inflammatory bowel disease. So we get back to our questions now. So we get asked the question, well, was, is this association due to chance? Well, the answer to that is no. I mean, this study now proves that it's not a chance association. All the other data could all be explained away by chance. The case reports could just be coincidental. Is the association due to confounding third factors that could be involved? Well, the answer is, is maybe. Uh, they didn't look at other things known to be risk factors for inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis, like smoking, like oral contraceptives. I mean, all of our patients with acetretinoin who are female, many of them are oral contraceptives. It's a major confounder. Uh, and more recently, even chronic antibiotics may be a risk factor for developing um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And then finally, the question of uh, what we call channeling bias is, well, maybe it's that people with bad acne have a higher rate of ulcerative colitis. That's certainly plausible and has not been investigated as of yet. So back to our criteria for causation. So a time sequence has been established. The biologic credibility is sort of unknown. No one really knows why this would happen. I mean, there's ideas, but it's not really proven. Uh, dose response has been shown for ulcerative colitis. So that's somewhat compelling. Uh, strength of the study designs, well, um, the studies have really lacked control for confounders and channeling bias. That makes them fairly weak. 
Strength of association, well, there's been no association for, Crohn, for Crohn's, but a modest association for ulcerative colitis. And there's really only been two studies out there, and they have conflicting results. There's not a lot of consistency yet in the literature. Okay. So now that's the state of the art, what we know about this topic. So um, how many of you here now would now vote that we should, put, that we should pull isotretinoin from the market due to the risk of inflammatory bowel disease? We have any votes for that? So no votes for that. I'll say, by the way, when you give these talks to people who are not derm, dermatologists or derm PAs, hands will go up. So when people are thinking about our diseases, you're a general internist or you're a um, uh, gastroenterologist, they don't like our drugs sometimes because they don't always understand the burden of our disease. So as an aside, <clears throat> it is really uh, critical that we educate the community about what our diseases do to people and why sometimes they're worth uh, some of these risks, even the risks are theoretical. Okay. How about a black box warning? How many people would say get, the drugs should get a black box warning <clears throat> based on these data? So we have no hands for that. Not a one. Okay. How many people say that there should be a regular warning for it in the label? Lots of hands. So, for, okay, let's, let's make the question tougher. How many people say think there should be a warning for, um, for uh, Crohn's disease in the label? So no, no one for Crohn's disease. How many people, but for ulcerative colitis, and most people think for UC, right, okay. Because uh, the warning's for both currently. Uh, and anyone say no action in a label? Anyone for that? I mean, some hands, and some hands probably should go up. I mean, the, the data are not very credible currently when it comes down to it. And I think as clinicians, we gotta wrestle with the fact that the, the biggest issues, of course, is pregnancy, which remains an ongoing problem, as tretinoin, as well as other potential side effects related to the drug. And when you're getting down to page 720 of the consent form, uh, it's hard, you know, it's, we get to a forest, the trees problem here. All right, so in summary, causal association has not been established between isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it is known that enterocolitis, which is not UC or IBD, may go away with isotretinoin withdrawal and reoccur <clears throat> if it's restarted, so you do have to keep an eye out for bowel symptoms. Uh, data suggests a specific association with ulcerative colitis, but their data are conflicting, and channeling bias and confounding haven't been addressed. And then the key thing is, what's the risk? So if the risk is real, it's small. You're talking about treating 3,300 patients with isotretinoin and get one extra case of ulcerative colitis. I mean, has anyone here treated 1,000 patients with isotretinoin in their career? Anyone? All right, so, I mean, probably this entire room together, we're probably getting close to having an extra case or two um, if this data is really true. Uh, and then ultimately, we have to, we in patients have to carefully weigh the risks and benefits of isotretinoin treatment as, as, as if in any therapy. All right, so some conclusions. Uh, you know, clearly, why I want to impress upon you is that the benefits of treatment are very well characterized at the time of approval relative to our understanding of the long-term safety of a drug and the risk of rare but serious medical events. Second issue is that there's a need for ongoing risk assessment throughout the life cycle of a drug. So I, I showed you that uh, with PUVA, for example, uh, where you see um, you know, the, it took 10 years to find a risk of squamous cell carcinoma, 20 years to find a risk of melanoma, which turns out probably not to be real. Uh, so even older drugs still need scrutiny. Uh, and then for clinicians, as clinicians, we need to use the science and medicine to judge safety. But we need to use the art of medicine communicating these risks or our therapies to patients. We don't want to scare our patients away from therapies that could, um, that could uh, benefit them tremendously, but we also don't want them to be uninformed. 
Uh, and finally, let's give you some practical advice from uh, Sir William Ozor. He, he said, and he was very impressioned on this, he said, don't be the first to prescribe a new treatment, and don't be the last to stop prescribing an old one. So you may not want to be the first person in your community to prescribe the latest drug for new indication, uh, giving it some time to get some maturity in the market to see if there's any early signals uh, out there. But certainly you don't want to be the last one to stop, to stop prescribing, say, hydroxyurea for psoriasis. I mean, we have many new drugs that are much better tested and have excellent safety profiles relative to some of our very very old therapies. Uh, so I will close there, and thank you so much for your attention. So I saved a little bit of time in the end for questions. Uh, we have, a, I know, a, a scheduled break for about 15 minutes. It'll be about a half an hour. Any questions from the audience I could address? Uh, I see some people coming to the microphone, so we'll give them some time. Um, thanks for your, for your talk. It was really great. I had a question. You sort of touched on it. I can't remember now many months ago, on the cover of a journal, there was an issue brought up about the potential risk of inflammatory bowel disease with doxycycline, minocycline, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, there was no statement from the AAD or anybody else. I felt like it was kind of just thrown out there and then haven't heard much. I wondered if you knew any more about it. Yeah, so, um, so I know the study pretty well. It was done by a colleague of mine at Penn, uh, David Margolis. And um, <clears throat> you know, I think really the, the point of the study is that they were just trying to understand the, uh, if commonly used therapies out there have some link to inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and there was some uh, linkage, if I remember the data correctly, for Crohn's more than ulcerative colitis. Uh, and, uh, but it's weak enough associations to, to not really know if you're talking about a disease indication causing it, that people with acne are more prone to developing inflammatory bowel disease or a drug indication. So it's not like we're at a stage where we think that um, antibiotics uh, certainly cause uh, inflammatory bowel disease. We don't have enough data to really conclude that. But you get a sense as practitioners what catches our attention. So um, you know, when law firms go after uh, big drug manufacturers, that gets our attention uh, and gets all of our discussions in the patient room. Uh, no one's really talking about antibiotics causing um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and probably shouldn't be based on the quality of data. Probably shouldn't be talking about based on the quality of data for isotretinoin. Uh, but without the same degree of legal interest in it, uh, that really dictates a lot of our discussions. Thanks. Any other questions? We have plenty of time. Burning drug safety questions in the audience? All right, well, you, you have won an extra 15 minutes on your break. Congratulations. We'll see you back at 2 o'clock. Thank you.